In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 18 through verse 19.8. As the war between King David and his rebellious son Absalom begins, Absalom finds himself trapped in an encounter, well, that will eventually seal his fate. Spoiler alert, he does not survive. Meanwhile, David is torn between his kingly duties and a father's love. And he's waiting in Jerusalem, hoping for his son's survival, even though his son has set himself up as an enemy against his father. Well, as reports from the battlefront arrive and the dust of war settles, the consequences of betrayal, that harsh reality of warfare, the depth of a father's love, all become tragically clear. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Wednesday, July 5th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. We're still waiting for our guest. Hopefully we can get him on the line in the next few minutes, but we're not going to wait. We're going to go ahead and open with a word of prayer as we try to get him. Here we go. Dearest, most holy and heavenly Father, the eyes of all look to you, and you give us what we need at the proper time. As we look across our nation and we examine our own hearts, we recognize that sin is pervasive in this world. Sin that results in the sickness of our bones all the way up to the wars that shake the world. Lord, we're looking at both the heart of a father as he relates to his son who has rebelled against him a war that is drug in brother against brother, a civil war, a nation that is divided and will continue to be divided. But all of these are people that you've called to follow you, and yet they give in to so much temptation. Lord, protect us from temptation in our days to do things that we think are best and rather seek after you for all that we want to do, all that we want to learn. Guide us in our faith and keep our eyes focused on Jesus and these things we pray in his name. Amen. Well, let's set the stage a little bit, right? So we are going into chapter 18, but Absalom, that's King David's son, has led a rebellion against his father. He, uh, I guess he put into action his charming persona and he convinced people, he swayed the hearts of the Israelites to follow him rather than David. He would listen to their complaints. He would hear their cases. He would make himself available in ways that either King David didn't do or he never gave his dad the opportunity to do. And he created a rift within the kingdom. So David, that's our shepherd turned king, right? The anointed one of God finds himself in this sort of heart-wrenching position where he has to wage a war. But he's waging a war not against a foreign enemy, but against his own flesh and blood. So at the heart of 2 Samuel 18 is the battle in the forest of Ephraim. It's a gripping, it's really a it's like a it's like a movie episode, right? Filled with the high stakes, dramatic tension. And we have this rebellious son on one side, and we have David's love for him, for Absalom, undiminished on the other. And so as we read this, we're going to see that David instructs his generals, in particular Joab and Abishai and Ittai, to deal gently with Absalom for his sake. 
And that's a request that adds quite a bit of complexity to the upcoming war. I mean, how can you both fight against a, a, a people who are dead set on dethroning you, fight against your son, and yet ask the people who are loyal to you, be gentle with him, be merciful to him? Well, anyway, we can see how personal relationships really intricately weave themselves into politics and war and it's already a rough situation, but this just makes it all the more sensitive. Could you imagine being Joab and a be shy and, and having to go out there and say, okay, if we, if we run into the enemy, be sure to take mercy on him, be merciful to him. That's, that's kind of the way God thinks about things, not the way people do. Well, I'll be interested to see if that plays out. We'll find out. Uh, but let's go ahead and read some of the text. We're going to begin chapter 18, verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to him, or to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. All right, we're going to pause there. That's the verse, uh, the end of verse five. So, we see here that he's mustering the people with him, right? So David has had time to regroup while at Mehanim, and he's enlisted the support of some other forces. That's why we have uh, the Gittite here. And and the sons of Zariah are going to come up time and again. In fact, I got an email, uh, or actually a Facebook messenger from one of the listeners about these sons of Zariah. And, and who do you have here? You have Abishai, the son of Zariah, and then Joab uh, is, of course, his brother. So they're both sons of Zariah. And, and one of the things that the listener asked about is, well, you know, when they call them sons of Zariah, isn't that just, isn't that just referring to them by their, by their mother's name, right? You know, Joab is David's nephew. So, yeah, it is, it is, but we're going to see this phrase used quite a bit by the writer of 2 Samuel to refer to kind of the nature of these guys. I mean, yes, it's, it's yeah, they're, they're Zariah's kids, but it's, it's being said in the sense of, oh, yeah, well, you know, those, you know those kids of Zariah, you know how they can be, you know how violent they are. Uh, that's, that's really the, the context here. The, the listener added in something about how— uh, the, the guys are called the Sons of Thunder in the New Testament. And yeah, right. It's, it's, it's kind of like a nickname that reveals a little bit about their personality. And so that's who we have. And he divides, that is David, divides his forces into three groups. And this ends up being a pretty divisive strategy. Uh, we're going to see how that works out when we keep reading in verse 6. We have uh, the Gittite here. 
Um, that's we first are introduced to this guy back in Second Samuel fifteen. I'm going to sort of go back in time, and we're going to read that. This is going to be verses nineteen through twenty-two. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, "Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home." You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, that Yahweh may show you steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As Yahweh lives, and as my lord the king lives, whenever my lord the king shall be, or wherever, whether for life or for death, there also your servant will be. David said to Ittai, Go and pass on. This is when David was departing Jerusalem. So he's put this guy, Ittai, over um, command of a third of the army. Pretty interesting. Um, He's probably the commander, for what it's worth, over the band of mercenaries from Gath, right? But his loyalty to David is recognized. Back in chapter 15, it says, you know, you guys just came here yesterday talking about his people, the, the people that followed him. And it wouldn't have been literally yesterday when he said that. It would be more along the lines of saying, uh, well, you guys just just arrived, but it could have been months um, or even like years. But the, the point was just to say, you don't have a, a battle. You don't, ha- you don't have a bone in this argument, right? You don't have a dog in this fight, to use, I guess, a pretty outdated term. You, you, you uh, have no reason to fight on behalf of us, but he's loyal, and that loyalty you see is paying off. He's going to lead the mercenaries from Gath. So there we go. We we have this idea that David is sending out the people. He's going to go with them. I'm going to be your king. I'm going to lead right beside you or maybe even in front of you. But they argue with him. They say, nope. Verse three, the men say, you shall not go out. Right? David's death is Absalom's primary objective. You have to remember that. Absalom doesn't want to fight the people of Israel. Absalom doesn't want to battle David's armies. Absalom just wants the throne. For as much as David loves his son, and that love seems to be just completely immalleable, right? I mean, he he loves him even as he's being actively attacked by him. doesn't seem like it's requited. Absalom just cares about killing David and taking the throne. So that's why they say what they say, right? To protect him, they tell him, listen, you remain in uh, Mehanim, uh, and then we're going to fight. (laughs) We have to protect you at all costs. And David does what a good leader does, what a good king does. He defers to their advice. You know, he defers to his, in this case, his, his military captains, his generals. You know, if they, if they were to be captured and killed, who cares, at least according to the grand scheme of the plan. But if David were to be captured and killed, well, they'd be killed too. <laughs> they'd probably be executed. So it's like, you know what, we have all the reason in the world to protect you. We want to keep our kingdom together. We want to protect you because you're the target. Uh, if, we, if we get killed, they act like nobody's going to care. Of course, people would care, but it still wouldn't end the war. So they say, nope, we are going to protect you at all costs. And that's what they do. David says, do what seems good in your eyes. And so even though he doesn't accompany the army out to battle, he's still in charge. 
He's still in charge, and he hails them all as he sends them out. We see that in verse 4. Uh, do whatever seems best to you. And then the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. I got to tell you, that's got to be such a scene. You know, I mean, I, I've obviously never been a king and I've never been even a president or a commander. I've never even been a sergeant in the army. I've never been in the military service. But I just imagining David standing there and you see tens and hundreds and thousands all march past you. They are all going to war for you, right? The, the leaders' uh, opinions, these generals who say, we're looking to protect you, you're worth 10,000 of us, um, they're, they're obviously being hyperbolic, but they believe in, in their king, and they believe in him not because he's the best king in the world, he certainly makes his own mistakes, but because he is the Lord's anointed. David respected the Lord's anointed when it was Saul, even as Saul was seeking to end his life. And now he's instilled that respect for the Lord's anointed in his people, and it's paying off. Of course, not everybody is on board. There are people who are following after, um, after uh, David's son, Absalom. But still, we have David, and he is watching the army go out for his sake. That must have been such a heavy feeling. Right, Heavy is the head that wears the crown. All these men, thousands of them, are going out to fight for him. But, of course, it's not just for him. It's for something greater. So David tells them, and this is, I think, what is really surprising. And um, I, I guess we have to figure out what his motivation is here. So the king, this is verse 5. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai. He said, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. He says, deal gently with him. Now, he doesn't necessarily say, don't kill him, don't take his life, but I, I think it's implied. I mean, deal gently, certainly it wouldn't be gentle if you were to take the one's life. I, I suppose he's holding out hope for some sort of rec you know, for reconciliation. But here's the thing. David's love for Absalom, I believe, is, is completely clouding his good judgment. I mean, to leave the enemy king alive, or to leave the usurper alive, I should say, um, he's not going to repent. Absalom's not going to reform himself. In fact, he's already showed that he won't. He'll just look for another opportunity. And yet David's love for his son, it just, it's, it, it's greater. It's greater than his fear of rebellion. I think that stands out in this. So that's what we have here. That's sort of the foundation. The army is going out to battle. David is staying behind, but he's still in charge. Absalom is looking to take out his father. And now we go to verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. And the battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. So let's pause it right there. That's the end of verse 8. We've only gotten a couple verses in, three verses. But So the army goes out against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. So remember that Absalom is essentially controlling 
Israel, and Judah is going to be following after um, after David. That's something we can get our terms confused if we don't understand the divisions that are taking place. But this rugged terrain, right? The forest, it's very colorful in the way it says it. The battle spread out over the face of the whole country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. So that ruggedness of terrain is uh, an advantage for David. You know, they're accustomed to hiding out in in the environments of the of the forest. They're 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 like guerrilla warfare. They're not all standing in a row like the redcoats. So they're using this to their advantage, uh, and it's something they're used to. This forest is located east of the Jordan River, by the way, and, and they have this big battle. And so, because of their advantage, that's why they give credit to the to the terrain. But still, the point is. Uh, the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. But let's not forget that this is still brother against brother. You know, the fact that the forest devoured them shows a little bit of God's hand in it all, too. We always talk about how whenever we look at the battles, especially as they are told in the Old Testament, we see that they give credit where credit is due. They give the victory to God, to Yahweh. Saul didn't do that as much as David does, and that's one of their character differences. Well, perhaps we're being intimated here that, that God is you know, getting the credit as he should. Right? The sword certainly is what in someone's life, but the fact that they were in this particular arrangement, maybe God caused you know, more injuries and deaths because of them rushing through this terrain. The forest swallowed the men up in the sense that maybe they got lost. They're removed from battle, right? They just their numbers are are disappearing, or it could just be a lot more simple than that. And that is that the men of Israel weren't as as adept at fighting in this terrain as David's men were. David's men, his special SEAL Team six hundred type of men. Of course, now we have thousands and thousands of them, but they've been trained up in this warfare. Regardless, uh, David is being victorious, and it, it and we certainly see the hints that God is the one behind this victory. All right, so let's keep on going now with verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. I think we should pause right there just to make sure you understand what just happened here. It's, a, it's, a, it's very descriptive. So it begins by saying Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, but then the way he meets them isn't like he runs into them. It says that he's riding along on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak or a terebinth in the, in the Hebrew here, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth. So I, I don't know how you imagine this. But, uh, you know, here's how I imagine it. First of all, you have to remember back in chapter 14, uh, when, when Absalom cut the hair of his head, it says in verse 26, because it says at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy, he weighed the hair on his head and it was 200 shekels by the king's weight. This uh, is, is a lot. A shekel is about... Uh, I guess 11 grams. So, you know, he has a ton of hair on his head. So assuming that he's he's kept the same style, his hair has been growing back, 
either his hair gets caught up into this thick branch, which I think is exactly as it's being described, or maybe even his head gets caught in one of the V's that branches often will make, you know, as they sprout off and he's caught in it. But regardless, he's literally hanging there by his head and by his hair. And it says he was suspended between heaven and earth. Now, I don't know if, uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is supposed to be read very symbolically, but you can't help but get this vibe that him being suspended between heaven and earth is like indicative of his fate, right? It, 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 do we know that he is going to uh, be killed or is he going to be saved? It, it, you know, obviously back in Deuteronomy chapter 21, we have this idea of, um, for a man who is hanged is cursed by God. And this connects, of course, to Jesus being hanged in the tree and him taking the curse upon himself. But here we have Absalom, and no one's hung him on this tree. He's hung himself on the tree. He probably had his hair down, um, and he gets caught up in it. And now what's his future? What will be his fate? He's suspended between heaven and earth, and the reader is led to wonder, well, what will happen? The mule that was under him just went on, <laughs> and now he's just hanging there. That's where we pick up with verse 10. He's suspended between heaven and earth. We don't know what's going to happen. Verse 10, and a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab, remember that's one of the generals, he says to the man who told him, what? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. Pausing there at the end of 11. That's interesting. Why didn't you kill him? Why didn't you execute him? If you would have executed the, 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 the false king, then I would have rewarded you handsomely, Joab says. But this man isn't a dummy, right? Remember earlier when it said that the, the king's orders to deal gently with Absalom was heard by other people? Well, this guy heard it. Verse 12. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man, Absalom. Uh, pausing there. Now, technically, what the words that we were given were, deal gently with Absalom. And if we had any question on what that meant, well, I think it's sort of interpreted for us. At least this guy understood being gentle meaning protecting, right? Do not kill. And that's fair. So he says, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't care if you paid me all the money in the world. I am not going to execute the king's son. Well, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. David has instilled in his people a respect for the office. He has instilled in his people a respect for God's anointed, even the son of God's anointed. So even here, when this guy is clearly in rebellion against his father, he's clearly in rebellion against his own people, he's dividing the nation into a civil war, and yet this just average guy, fighter, says, no, I'm not going to take the life of the king's son. It just wouldn't be heard of. Plus, he'd heard the king. He heard the king's orders. So he continues, though, because he's got another point, verse 13. He tells Joab, on the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life 
and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. <laughs> and I like that because he says, basically, if I would have killed him and, and I would have gotten in trouble, you know what? You, you, you wouldn't have come to my defense. You would have probably thrown me under the bus. You would have, you would have said, oh, yeah, you know, this mere soldier is the one who took the life of your son. So he's like, yeah, don't put that on me. I, even if I had done it, you wouldn't have rewarded me. You would have just turned me in. You would have used me as a patsy, as a scapegoat. Then you yourself would have stood aloof, he said. Well, Joab doesn't like that. Verse 14, he says, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand, and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. Think of that. He's still hanging there alive. He must have been injured in some way or just couldn't pull himself up the way he was hanging because the, they're arguing this whole time, has enough time for Joab to go and find him, and he, boom, three javelins and thrust them into the heart of, of Absalom. Uh, I know... <laughs> I know that uh, some people ask, well, why? Why so many javelins, right? It seems like an overkill, literally. Uh, one commentator I read said that Joab may have thrown the javelins like so many to dislodge him from the tree's branches. Like he was trying to kill them, but at the same time, he was just trying to get him out. So one, you know, oh, I'm trying to knock him out of the tree. Two, trying to dislodge his hair from the branches. Three, he's trying to kill him too. And for what it's worth, it doesn't look like he is killed, despite the three javelins. Verse 15, and ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So I, I don't get the sense that he fell out of the tree and then they all surrounded him. I think that after uh, Joab tried three times and failed, they all rush up and basically take care of the, the job. And this works out, too, because there's ten of them. Who, who are you going to blame? No individual person really could be pointed to. It was all of them. So that's how the poor Absalom meets his end. His dad wants to protect him even though he is rebellious. He's ordered these people to deal gently with them. And Joab, one of the sons of Zariah, Joab returns to his violent methods of taking care of business. He thinks he knows better than the king. And he takes the life of, uh, of Absalom here. So this is where we're at. We just have a couple more verses before the break. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom, and they threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. We'll talk about that a little bit, what that means, and we're going to get into what David does when he hears about his son's Absalom's death. But we're going to have to take a few minutes for a break before we do that. Don't go anywhere. When we return, I'm going to keep on going through 2 Samuel chapter 9, or 18.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is Nobody I'm Afraid. My guests couldn't make it, so it's just me and just you and the Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. I like doing that every now and then. You know what? You can also reach out to me. This doesn't have to be a one-way conversation. Send me your questions or comments at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can also find me on Facebook. Just search for Phil Boo. And uh, send me a message, uh, send me a friend request. And in case you haven't heard it enough from me or you just haven't tried it yet, I want you to know that Thy Strong Word offers multiple ways for you to stay connected. Of course, we broadcast over AM850 in the St. Louis area, but you know what? We're a worldwide program, and not everybody can listen to the signal from St. Louis, so you can also access the program by subscribing to it as a podcast. Or if that's not your style, you can just listen live or on demand. It's super easy by going to kfuo.org or by downloading the KFUO radio app on your Android or your iOS phone. So yeah, just download those things, listen to the program live, listen to any of the other programs that KFUO offers. Uh, it's a great opportunity to stay connected. So I hope you uh, take advantage of that. They worked really hard on that and it works great. Well, before the break, you know, we were just here at the end, and Joab has taken the life of Absalom against the king's wishes. And not just Joab, but his armor bearers, but still, he takes this as a, as a well, a, a victory, right? This is, a, this is, he's victorious now over the leader. And it makes sense, too, because it says that once he blew the trumpet, the troops come back. He, he starts restraining them back. It's, he demobilizes them, and they took Absalom, and they threw him in a great pit. Um, they, <laughs> they, they throw him into this just heap of stones, and everybody in Israel, everybody that was following Absalom just goes home. No leader, no cause, no battle. Um, it's interesting because it says Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the King's Valley. He says, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. Um, we do know that he does have sons. Uh, three sons were born to Absalom uh, and a daughter who he named Tamar. Uh, so we see here that he does have sons. Why say this? Well, perhaps those sons had died in battle by this point. Um, we don't know. But in any case, he, uh, he, we have this phrase, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. Perhaps his sons are died. And so he called the pillar after his own name, and it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. Whenever you see stuff like that, it's really neat to remember that these things are really happening. <laughs> these aren't Bible stories. I, I try to avoid using the word story. Now, I know a story can be true, 
But whenever we say Bible stories, it just gives the connotation that you're reading these little fake stories to your children. They're little fictions or you know, little golden books, and they're just something that kids and you know maybe teenagers will will benefit from. And it teaches a nice moral lesson. But that's not the case. These are accounts, narratives, events. This is history going on. And so when we see things like it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. Well, that probably doesn't mean much for you and me. We don't immediately think in our head, oh yeah, Absalom's Monument. Yeah, I've been there a couple of times. But it would have for them. For the original hearers of this, that would have helped them connect not only geographically where things were taking place, but it would help remind them that this is real stuff. This is history. I don't think that they would have doubted that, but it's just, it's such a connection to you know all this stuff I'm talking about, but you also know where it happened because, well, you've heard about it as you've grown up. And that's what we're doing here. He called the pillar after his own name, and they're like, yeah, we know what that is. So in any case, let's hit into verse uh, 19 where we left off. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that Yahweh has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, uh, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go and tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Let's pause right there. So what's happening here is this guy named Ahimaaz, or uh, Ahimaaz, there's two A's in that, so Ahimaaz is excited to go and deliver this message. He's excited. He wants to go. He wants to tell the king. And, and the reason why he's really happy about it is because it's, it's news to their point of view, right? The Israelites that they were fighting have, have, uh, have departed. They're gone. And, and now we're, we've won. We've, we've killed their king or the usurping king. But Joab is smart enough to know that this is not the kind of news that you want to bring to David, especially if you bring it joyfully, right? Because we get this idea that this, this, this is one of the spies that we talked about in chapter 17, but one of David's spies, but he's excited because he wants the king to know that Yahweh is with them, that the battle is being won for them, but he's letting his excitement over this um, maybe cloud his judgment a little bit. You know, what, does he really want to be the guy who runs up to David to tell him in an excited way, your son is dead. It's, you know, rejoice. So Joab says, no, we're going to send the Cushite. Uh, a Cushite is uh, someone who's from Ethiopia, I guess is the best way to say that. So the Cushite is a foreigner. And so it's like, you know, we're going to send this foreigner. He's going to tell David um, you know, perhaps even, perhaps even, um, uh, you know, the, the, if he does react violently, it'll be against this foreigner and not against one of us. You can look at that however you want, but he doesn't want Ahimaaz to send the message. Okay. Uh, so then verse 22, then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. 
So he said to him, run. And then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. That's the end of verse 23. This foreigner, this Cushite, probably didn't really know the fastest way. I mean, maybe. Maybe that's why he was able to outrun him. Or simply, Ahimaaz is more excited about bringing this news to David than the Cushite. Cushite's not dumb. He knows that the king's not going to be happy with this news, and he knows why he's being sent, so that perhaps uh, reporting this, and if the king is angry, uh, he'll he'll take the brunt of it. So he, he might be going the slow way or might be going the long way. Who knows? But Ahimaaz, he doesn't care. He runs by the way of the plane. So we get this idea that he knew a faster way, and he outran the Cushite. Let's get back into the text. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. And the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings news. And the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. All right, pausing there, the end of verse 27. Uh, First of all, I just love the idea that we see these two men running separately. The the guys on the, the watchman, you know, he's supposed to be looking out for stuff like this. And once he says to David, hey, there's like this guy running by himself and David's like, oh, that makes sense. He's bringing me news from the battle. And then the watchman goes, wait a minute. I, I, uh, I know this guy. I, I know how he runs. It's the running like of Ahimaaz. All right. This guy is, I guess he runs in a particular way. I, I've seen people uh, run and you can always tell, you know, oh, this person runs a little different than this person. They look at this and they know just by the way he's running that it's Ahimaaz. Uh, and so, yeah, so he, David goes, yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, me, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. Yeah, he's a good guy. And he comes with good news. Now, does David know that the news is going to be good? Well, you know, I don't know. I, I think maybe David understands that the news will be solid coming from Ahimaaz. Ahimaaz is going to speak to him um the 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 truth well let's just see how it all works out verse 28 then Ahimahaz cried out to the king all is well and he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and he said blessed be Yahweh your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king so he's yeah verse 29 is next but he says yeah he's bringing good news Blessed be Yahweh. Yahweh has delivered him. He wants to be the guy that tells the king, we've won. God has been victorious on our behalf. He's given us the victory. But you can see what's on David's mind. It's hardly the victory, so to speak, because what is it a victory of? A victory against those who had been persuaded by a usurping, rebellious man? They've been persuaded to fight against their own brothers, their own kinsmen. So David probably doesn't necessarily see a victory. A victory could be the end of the end of the war for sure, but 
his mind turns quickly to his son. Verse 29, And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I don't know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and he stood still. So Ahimaaz acts like he doesn't know. He leaves the bad news part to the Cushite. I just think that's, I don't know. I mean, you know, we think of the bravery. We think of the bravery of Ahimaaz who says, I don't care what happens. I want to go. I want to make sure that I am going to uh, be the one to tell him that we have this great news, that the, the war is over essentially, but at least the battle is over. And, but that's not what he cares about. He cares about his son. And so he says, well, uh, what's happened to Absalom, the young man, Absalom? He didn't say the usurping, rebellious, fake king, Absalom. He says the young man, Absalom. I think that in itself is striking. As a, as a father myself, of course, my son is just about to turn 16. I have a daughter too. I, you know, my wife, I think more than me a little bit, but always sees them as, as little kids and they're pretty little. My daughter's going to be 12, but I think as they grow older, you still see them as your children, you know? And so he doesn't necessarily say the, the scoundrel with the heavy head of hair, Absalom. He says the young man, Absalom, he still sees him as his young man. But Ahimahaz, for all his bravery to get there and, I guess, take the credit for the good news, he doesn't tell him the bad. But no, no fears, right? We have the bad coming. It's coming from the Cushite, verse 31. The author writes, Behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for Yahweh has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom. My son, my son. David is distraught. And, and look at the, and I know that I'm reading some tone into the text, but just think about the Cushite. You know, Ahimaaz is warned not to go because you're essentially delivering bad news. The king's son is dead. The Cushite comes and he reads the bad part as if it's the good part. He says, good news, right? You've been delivered this day. It's the same message he received from Ahima, uh, Ahimaaz. But then he tells the other part like it's good news. He says, well, what's with the young man Absalom? And I guess he can't read his audience because he says, boy, I wish all of your enemies would have the horrible fate that that young man had. Oh, man. David is distraught. He's just discovered, just discovered that his son is dead. And he was really hoping against hope. He knew that this would probably be the way it would all come to an end. But he held out hope that, that his son would somehow survive. Don't all parents continue to hold out for hope, especially those children who've turned astray, 
maybe those children who are now adults in their own right. And you just, you just hope against hope that they'll find their way home, whether it be home to mend relationships with family, whether it's home to the church where God wants to give them his gifts, regardless of what it looks like for you to want the children to come home and, and repent of whatever has caused them to rebel. Uh, sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. And, and David was hoping that somehow the Lord would see fit to bring his son home. But instead, his son has received the due reward for his violence, for his rebellion. God has judged the son of David, Absalom, and he has been killed. But still, we have a lot of complexity here, right? Because although Yahweh is delivering the victory, there's still some people involved. Uh, you know, you have David, who really, tactically speaking, should be dividing, you know, divorcing his feelings about Absalom as a son and recognizing him as an enemy. You have Joab, who thinks he knows better than the king and wants to act in the, in the king's stead, uh, but really is disobeying the king. You have the Cushite who can't read a room and doesn't understand that David is is distraught over Absalom. And then you have Ahimaaz who wants to be in the king's good favor for giving the good news, but is a little bit more cowardly when it comes to telling him the bad news. Just it's such the complexity of what's going on. And it reminds you again that this is real people, real people dealing with real loss, loss that we can sometimes, I think, identify with too. We can think about the ways in which we hope for one thing, but the Lord had decided another. You know, we're none of us are a, a king, uh, or I don't think we are, <laughs> or a father or mother who's in suspense over the fate of our son. Um, but still we have this we have this truth that sometimes is a harsh truth. And the phrase, which is ironic, I think, as the Kushite comes is uh, shalom, right? He says, there's peace. Hene shalom. Behold, there is peace. That's what he's saying. He's running, saying, behold, there is peace. There is peace. And then he gives David news that cast out all peace from his heart. He struggles. He's, he's, he's just in, in mourning over the loss of his son. That's a, that's a feeling that I can't empathize with. You know, I've not experienced that. But certainly there are people out in our uh, audience who have experience they you know they 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 can empathize with David who's lost a son even a son who has rebelled and so that's where we're at when we come into chapter 19 let's start with 19 cuz we're we get to read into 19 a little bit we're going to finish it up tomorrow but we're going to read through the first 8 verses today cuz it kind of relates that's why I held it over it was told Joab behold the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom so the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. And the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house and to the king, and he said, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. 
for you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you for today. I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by Yahweh, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Let's pause right there before we read the last verse. So what's happening here makes a lot of sense. You know, I'm sorry, but it does. Joab, the military commander, the one who who took the life of Absalom, essentially, he and his men, he's going to the king, and the king is so distraught over Absalom, and we don't necessarily want to take that away from him, but he's so distraught over Absalom, he's missing the point. You know, Joab, who's been on the front lines, remember, David didn't go. He says, listen, these people have, have fought for you. They fought in your name. They fought for the kingdom that you represent. They fought for God. Some of them have lost their lives. There are people here who have been wounded to an extent where they are maimed. They have family who will never see their children again. These people are out there fighting for you, and here you are crying over the enemy. If you keep this up, David, Joab says, if you keep this up, nobody's going to follow you. And that makes a lot of sense, right? And now, he, remember, he's the commander of the army, but he's also his nephew. Not that that buys you a lot of frank speaking with the king, but still, there's some connection there. And he says, basically, instead of expressing gratitude, instead of celebrating the extraordinary victory, you're mourning over your dead son, your dead rival, really. And so if the army failed to do what the king said and bring him back alive, he has the right to be upset. He has the right to mourn his son. But at the same time, the people are just floored. They don't understand because Absalom had gone to war in order to kill him. Absalom betrayed his father. He killed the crown prince. He then treasonly claimed his father's throne while David was still alive. He undermined his father's authority. He conspired against the king again. He finally usurped the throne. He had relations with his father's concubines in the presence of the people so that they could see how he was now in charge. And he attempted to kill David in the battle. They could list off all of these things that we've been going through from chapters 13 through 17. They could list off all these things and just say, David, why? Or king, they wouldn't call him David, right? But they say, why? Why? And so David's mourning is stifling the joys of victory. People aren't going to go to battle if they're going to feel like they're the guilty ones when they come home. So Joab is bold. He goes right into the king's house, which he shouldn't have been allowed to do, and he chastises him. So we have the uh, disloyal, rebellious Absalom. We have David who loves him anyway. You know, if that's not a picture of our relationship with God, then what is? You know, if we make David the Christ, and he is the type of Christ, right? But if we, make, if we put David in as if this were a parable, and let's say he's the Christ, then who are we? Are we the people fighting for the king, or are we the rebellious son? Are we the rebellious one who wants to rule after um, the rule the world in our own way? Who wants to go after our own interests? Who wants to be in charge rather than just submit to God? Well, hopefully we're in the army of God. Hopefully we're the ones fighting for uh, the king. Hopefully we're the ones standing and listening and obeying the king. But 
at some point in our lives, we were the rebellious sons. We were the ones who were enemies of God, and we deserve the death that Absalom received. But in the same way that David would have saved his rebellious son, he's, the, 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 the actual Christ, the one who finally came, the true Christ, he does that. He saves us from our own rebellion by sacrificing himself on a tree. And then we get to be called the sons and daughters of God, and we get to be in the army of God, and we get to have these privileged positions, not because we've done anything to deserve it, because we're the Absaloms, but rather because of the great love that, they, that God showed us through Jesus. Now, you know, obviously I'm mixing a few metaphors there, but I think you understand the point. We see a love within the heart of David that really is reflective of the love that God shows for his rebellious people. That's us. David would have saved his son. God did save us through his son, Jesus. So the king arose, he took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. When we come back tomorrow, David is going to return to Jerusalem. Uh, we're going to see the, what the fallout from all of this. Uh, but you know what? I think it's going to be, you're going to be surprised. If you think David's anger is going to persist into the next chapter, uh, it doesn't, really. Uh, in the aftermath of this bitter, bitter civil war, right? Israel is wounded by the division. David is continuing to be haunted by the rebellion of his own son. Now he's mourning his death. But he does have, you know, he has people like Joab reminding him, you have to restore order. You have to reclaim the throne. You need to reconcile uh, with the people. And so alliances are tested, old wounds resurface. David is trying to reconcile with those who remain loyal, and he ends up forgiving so many who betrayed him. That's all going to be tomorrow. And don't forget this Friday, we have another special free text First Friday episode. This time it's featuring the Reverend David Benning. Um, it's going to be on Matthew 18 and Christian reconciliation. That's just a coincidence, by the way, but isn't that great? We're going to talk about uh, more of David tomorrow, and then Friday we're going to talk about Christian reconciliation. Then we'll come back on Monday and finish up with chapter 20. But that's it, folks. It's the end of the program. I'm so glad you hung out with me today. Until tomorrow, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. Amen.